Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you today. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm the pastor of Missional Living here at State Road Church and honored again to have an opportunity to share with you from God's Word this morning, especially during this holiday time. Christmas time and the time of Advent is a celebratory time. It's a time of celebration. And uh, what I want to share with you this morning, uh, first note, I'd like to share that it's out of a personal conviction in my own life. As pastors, we too are subject to the patterns and the failings of the flesh. And so I pray that you heed uh, what I have to share this morning as a warning of someone who's impacted rather than a condemnation or a particular judgment on any of you. During these celebrations in these times, we look forward to what God has for us. We're celebratory, we're excited, there's trappings of Christmas all around us. But what is it that we do with the in-between times, the times between Christmas and Easter, the times between the celebrations with our faith. How do we lay that out? How do we operate? How do we celebrate what God has done for us each day rather than just in these times of celebration? And as we look towards God's Word this morning, we're going to be opening Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And it's a familiar story, a familiar story, a familiar passage, part of the familiar Christmas story. It's the visit of the Magi of Jesus after his birth. But it's stories like these that I hope we can look at with a renewed look that will offer hope towards a sense of awe as we look at the intricate story of salvation that was woven by God himself in these scriptures. And so this morning, I encourage you to do that. Look for the ways God is encouraging you to live out your faith and your life in the ordinary times. In the Catholic liturgical calendar, there is a time actually called ordinary time. Between Christmas and Easter and Easter and Christmas, those specific areas, which is a significant portion of our calendar, is called ordinary time. It starts the first Sunday of the new year. And of course, that's next Sunday, not this Sunday, but we're going to be gone, so I had to preach it this week. But the first Sunday of the new year, the first Sunday after Epiphany, January 6th, that's the day celebrated for the visit of these wise men. And it marks the return to ordinary time. And I think sometimes we can be even too familiar with that word ordinary to do much with it. We treat it as average, unexceptional, the dull feelings that go with such a word. See, sometimes promptly after Christmas, and I think we've even done it here, we've done it in our home, we remove the trappings of Christmas The Christmas music stops on the radio. The Christmas decorations come down faster than they were put up. I don't know how many of you are as eager to take down your decorations as my family is eager to put them up. But that often happens. We tuck away the Merry Christmas greeting until next year. I follow a number of church media and technology pages on Facebook. That's part of my job here at State Road Church is also to oversee audiovisual and broadcast. And one of the things that I go in and do is look for ways that, of course, we can improve our technology here at the church. But one of the comments the day after Christmas was, what is everyone's plans for Easter? It can only be a little bit made worse by Walmart who already has all their Valentine's stuff out. So if anybody wants to get a jump on filling out your Valentine's cards, you have a lot of Valentine's, you can go get those because Walmart is fully transferred over. But that's that's what we do. We jump. 
We jump from holiday to holiday, from occasion to occasion, from celebration to celebration. But in the in-between times, in the ordinary times, what do you do with your faith? What do you do with your faith to combat the mundane familiarity that goes with everyday life outside these rhythms of celebration? Last January, I was with a team in, from State Road in Palenque, Mexico. We joined with uh, a team from San Diego and uh, Tijuana uh, that is set up by Craig and Christy Livy, some of our missionaries. And the Tijuana team met us, and we flew down to Palenque together. And uh, the first morning that we were there, we were actually supposed to go right down to El Buen Pastor. That's the name of the clinic where we were going to go do some work with uh, training them on these brigadas that, uh, that they do in Tijuana. And uh, just due to some unexpected circumstances, we ended up in a hotel the first night. We ended up in a hotel. We got a great night uh, of sleep. And then the next morning, we all got up and kind of filtered our way down to, the, uh, down to the foyer and then off to the breakfast buffet. Anybody like a good breakfast buffet? Yeah. Most hotels, they don't have good ones. Mexico, they had pretty good breakfast buffet. But I, I headed into the breakfast buffet with my plate, and one of the first things I saw there was, uh, was the word, uh, and, thank, and thankfully everything was in Spanish and English, but the first one I saw was huevos revolutos, and beneath that it said revolved eggs. Has anybody ever had revolved eggs? Revolved eggs. Yeah, revolved eggs. Uh, of course, this is, they're just scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs is all that really meant. But I, at first, I was, a little bit, uh, I was a little bit taken aback. I was a little bit nervous about what revolved eggs actually meant. But at the same time, I was also a little bit excited. I was a little bit intrigued that for the first time, I might enjoy a taste of Mexican cuisine with these revolved eggs. I might have been a little bit more perplexed by the words that were in front of it if it wasn't for the fact that I could see very clearly that they were scrambled eggs when I opened up the plate. I was disoriented. I was frustrated because these were just plain old run-of-the-mill scrambled eggs. The interesting thing is that I love scrambled eggs. I really do. I enjoy them. I eat them anytime I can for breakfast. I enjoy scrambled eggs. But I guess I was just expecting something more out of the ordinary, something different. So turn with me to Matthew 2, 1 through 12, as we read God's word together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring word to me that I may too come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The particular concern that I have for myself and for all of you today is the propensity for us to focus on what's directly in front of us, what is seemingly the most urgent. Individually, you and I find uniquely important or relevant things in our own lives. There's things that I think are more relevant than I'm sure you do. There's things that I think are more urgent than I'm sure you do. But psychologically, this term is called salience bias. Unchecked spiritually, it can lead to mundane faith that is fanned only into flame at Christmas and Easter, allowed instead to die down to embers as the familiarity of our worship envelops us in the ordinary times. And so it's important, I believe, to be aware of this disposition in our lives. In the life of a Christian, I think it's important to understand that our propensity is to do such a thing. That in the ordinary, easy times, we can fall prey to a faith that is allowed to die down to embers. As we look at this story of the Magi, it can be easy to focus on the actions and the words of the Magi. They're coming to celebrate the newborn king. But before we do that, I want to look at the words and the actions of the Israelites. In verse 3, after the introduction of the Magi, it says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. The very people, the very people he was coming to save... They were troubled instead by the excitement of the outsiders, the familiarity they had, the chief priests and the scribes with the divine, and a love instead for the world made them uneasy rather than merry in a time like this. The Magi, however, were excited. After traveling what was likely more than 900 miles from Babylon or possibly Arabia, they reached Jerusalem. They enter the city walls, enter the gates, and I envision them seeking, searching, asking this question, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And I would think that from coming so far with such a, such a, a small understanding, a small familiarity with, with the, the prophecies that came from Scripture, that they would think that the people around them The people of Jerusalem would be just as excited to say, he's over here. This is where we found him when we were going to search for him as well. Yet instead, we see that the nation was troubled. It's unlikely that the first person that they asked the question of was Herod. He summoned them after hearing the stir that they were creating throughout the city. Where is he? Where is this king who was born the king of the Jews? 
The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us where the Magi are from besides the fact that they come from the east. But it's likely, however, that with the Jewish influence in Babylon that this is where they came from. These men prepared. They traveled four to five months journey of faith to fulfill portions of Isaiah 60, which say the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. God began to draw the nations to himself for his glory, for his good, to recognize the kingship of his son Jesus. The kingship that should have been recognized first by his own people. He reached into the middle of their lives, likely lives that have some of the same rhythms yours and I do. We eat, we sleep, we wake up, we have relationships. There's births. We just had a birth this week. The Cheneys had their child, and uh, her name is Jacqueline. And I have no nicknames, I'm not going to say anything from the pulpit here, but Jacqueline. And so there's births, there's also deaths. There's other rhythms that match the lives that we live today, that likely they also were in the midst of. Yet their lives were shifted in an instant, shifted towards the true God, and now directed by something outside of themselves, outside of what was normal in their prior worldview as they saw this star to lead their way. I believe here in the story of the Magi that we see a design for faith alongside of the danger in faith that we find in the Israelites. The design for faith here has, I believe, four components that I want to address. They are recognizing his kingship. They are submitting to his kingship. They are finding joy in his kingship. And they're finding a reliance on the king, this Christ. The Magi recognized that Jesus was king. In verse 2, it says that they, uh, uh, when they, the question they were pursuing was, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And it was customary in those times to bring gifts to the kings, to bring gifts to kings that you were coming to visit. We see in verse 11 that then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Ironically, it says nothing of any gifts being given to Herod. Herod was the reigning king, yet they brought nothing for him. The reigning king over this Roman territory of Judea, I'm sure in contrast, found what they proclaimed to be very disconcerting, very troubling. For him, it meant a loss of power. For him, it meant change that he wasn't willing to go with. Yet the nation of Israel, it meant salvation. And so why instead did they follow the kingship of Herod rather than the kingship of Christ? In contrast, the current king along with the chief priests and the scribes, they're troubled by this new king's presence. They're threatened even. To the extent we later find out in this chapter that Herod actually commands that all of the children from zero to two years old, all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding villages be killed. To route out this trouble, to route out this 
concern, to route out this change to his life, the life that he's become comfortable with. The chief priests and the scribes knew the prophecy of the Christ being born in Bethlehem, yet none of them seemed to follow the Magi. None of them seemed to follow along to see the one that their own scriptures speak of. The Magi also submitted to the kingship of Jesus. There's no explicit reason that these men should have made a journey, especially a journey so long that they did. They weren't forced. They weren't hired. But through the study of Jewish texts combined with their study of the stars, God revealed himself to the Magi, just like he does for you and I. He reveals himself to us. It's not an amount of knowledge or study or familiarity with God's word that will earn us a place in heaven. He's revealed himself to each one. He's given us an opportunity through the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ to know who he is and to tell others about that same message that we've been given as well. They choose to obey the voice of God. It says that they fell down and they worshipped him. And then as they were leaving, it says in a dream that they heard that they should go home by another way. And they followed that voice. They followed the voice of a child rather than the voice of an earthly king to return. A child versus a king with the power and authority of Rome. Through the Magi, I believe we begin to see God availing himself to the world, to the Gentiles, and in turn we see them searching for him, recognizing him, submitting to him, disrupting their very lives for him. This is what God calls us to in faith, to live lives that are disrupted, changed, challenged, away from what is mundane away from what is ordinary, away from what is self-serving. The Magi were joyful in their pursuit of Jesus. In verse 10, as we see the star appear again to lead them, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Greek word here is kara, meaning rejoice because of grace, and then also kareo, which means directly glad for grace. It's the same word that's later used in Matthew 28 to describe the joy of Mary Magdalene and of Mary as they joyfully found the tomb empty, as they joyfully ran to tell the others what they had seen. It's quite a contrast, I believe, to the troubled hearts of the chief priests, the troubled hearts of the scribes, a heart of joy glad for grace. I've been reading a book called Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp, in which he shares this thought, and I think it's particularly applicable here today. It says, artists talk of the dynamic of visual lethargy, which means that more, the more you see something, the less you actually see it. On that drive to work the first day, you were very conscious of all the sights and sounds. 
You notice the beautiful grove of ancient trees and that cool modern duplex on the corner. But by your 20th trip, you have quit noticing. And instead, you wish the traffic would move faster so you could get to work. Something has happened. Something that seems inevitable, but it is not good. You have quit seeing. And in your failure to see, you have quit being moved and thankful. The beauty that once attracted you is still here to see, but you don't see it. And you cannot celebrate what you fail to see. When, we have, when have we followed suit? When have we followed suit with the scribes and the chief priests and have quit seeing what God has done for us? In the ordinary times, in the in-between, in the mundane rhythms of our life, when have we quit seeing what God has done for us? As the lethargy builds in the ordinary times, we are in danger that even the celebrations of Christmas and Easter become ever so ordinary as well. We cannot celebrate what we fail to see. We cannot trust what we don't feel we need. There's a reliance on Christ that the actions of the Magi, I believe, demonstrate. They had a perceived need. They were compelled to seek out Jesus. These men that were not particularly Jewish in any mean, opened up the scriptures of God's word and were met with an understanding that they needed something, that they needed something that this world cannot offer, that they needed something that was only supernatural, and so they sought out Jesus. The gifts they gave were expensive, yet I don't believe that their pursuit of the child gives us pause to think that they were trying to earn his favor. I don't think Jesus in a manger certainly needed gold and frankincense and myrrh. I mean, it's nice to have a little bit of extra cash. But at that particular time, and as a reminder from Scripture, Jesus needs nothing. I don't think they were earning his favor. I don't think they were paying a price in worship. Instead, I think they were responding the way God had foretold in Isaiah 60, 19 through 20, the prophet Isaiah said this, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor your brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will be no more go down, your moon will withdraw itself, will no more withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. By God's design... By God's design, at the coming of Christ, the natural rhythms of this world began to be replaced. And we need to follow suit in understanding that the natural rhythms that we have here are not what will sustain us, are, what, are not what we will find our security in. The government, the powers, the authorities around us are not what we should get, gain our security from, but instead... We should have this reliance on Jesus. Is there any greater example of the ordinary mundane reliance for each of us than there is on the sun? That it would rise in the morning and set in the evening giving us light. That for some people it would give heat to as well, not for us. 
We're finally getting our snow. I don't know if anybody's excited about that. But the sun rises and the sun sets. Every day. Has anybody woken up a day to the sun not rising? Has anybody gone to bed? Well, maybe you've gone to bed before the sun sets, but... The sun rises and the sun sets. It's constant. It's consistent. We know we've been promised this in Scripture. Yet God says, I will be your light. I will replace this thing that you rely on, and I will be your everlasting light. We can see here in the lives of the Magi, their interaction with the divine demonstrates a departure from their own self-reliance. In exchange for the awe-producing power of Jesus... Is God your light? Is God your light today? Is He your glory? Or has the in-between time, the ordinary time, has it blinded you from seeing the beauty that is still there, but we just can't see? Professor and theologian B.B. Warfield once wrote this, God's stately steppings, and his redemptive process may become to you a mere series of facts of history, curiously interplaying to the production of social and religious conditions. This is your great danger. And so today, you've been made aware of the danger, if you, haven't, if you weren't already aware. You've been informed that the design of faith through the recognition of Christ's kingship through submission to Him, through joy and grace and the reliance on Christ. Then how does this play out in the body of Christ? How does this play out in the days ahead in the in-between? I want to leave you with just a few thoughts here. First, what is being developed here is the society of the kingdom. What God is developing in the Magi and in the church today is the society of the kingdom a place where unmerited favor of God is present both for the nation of Israel and for the Gentiles. Just because the negative light of the Israelites that they've been painted in in this picture throughout this story doesn't discount them as a nation from seeking God, so too doesn't our standing as Gentiles, the fact that we have no heritage with the Israelites. That's what unmerited faith is. That's what the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is. It's not something the Magi earned by bringing gifts, but instead they came to him because they knew nothing, to do nothing different. They needed to see this Jesus. They needed to see this king that would replace the sun and the moon that would become their light. Are you embracing today his unmerited favor? Secondly, the society that he's creating, the society of the kingdom is open to those who seek him. In verse 60, Isaiah, uh, uh, Isaiah verse six, uh, chapter 60, verse 11, it says this, Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. It's a promise echoed in Revelation 21, 22 through 24, which says this, 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the king, kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The gates of this city used to be closed. The gates of Jerusalem used to be closed to protect the city from attack. However, the kingdom of God is far from norm. The kingdom of God is far from what we think needs to happen for the sake of pragmatism and safety. Instead, Isaiah prophesies along with John and in Revelation that the gates will stay open so that the nations might come bearing gifts. And so that's a question today for you to, to take home. Are you trusting him to replace the threat of attack? Not with more security, but instead with the bearing of good gifts. What God offers us isn't more of the same, it's something different. And lastly, he says to become light. In Isaiah 61, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The Hebrew word here uh, for shine literally means to become light. Become light, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Pastor Matt Chandler said this about our mission in the world. At the center of the Christian faith is a man dying, being murdered by his enemies while praying for them. See, what makes God's call to mission so profound for the believer is any conquest of salvation does not come by the might of the sword or by intimidation. It comes by the proclamation of the word, by the spilling of our blood, so that we don't kill to get converts. We lay down our lives to show that there is something more valuable in this life. We lay down our lives by allowing Christ to be the everlasting light. To be the everlasting light that we choose to reflect in our lives to the people around us. To show them that there is more than this life here on earth. There's more than just going about the daily rhythms of our day. There is a future. There is an eternity and he calls us to become light. To become light in the dark so that others may see something more valuable than what the world has to offer. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, it tells us this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people let a, light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God is calling me to a life that's different. God's calling you to a life that's different. God's calling us together to a life that is different, that is far from ordinary, that is far from mundane, that is far from the trappings of our normal rhythms of each day. 
And so in these in-between times, what will you do? How will you serve? How will you go that the Lord might be glorified in your doing? How will you become light today? How will you stay light that you will not be uh, let to, to, to burn down to embers just for the sake of celebrations at Christmas and Easter? In these ordinary times, have you found him today? Have you found him today? And what will you do with what God has given you? The knowledge, the understanding, the relationship that he's granted you through his son, Jesus. Have you found him today? Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us through your son, Jesus. Lord, it's a prayer that I say over and over and over, but today particularly so. Thank you for the birth and the death of your son. Lord God, I just pray that in these times in between, as we head into the ordinariness of the in-between, that you would challenge us in a way, Lord, that keeps us off the bench. Lord, it keeps us off our couches. It keeps us in a place, Lord, where you can use us. Lord, help us to become light. Help us to put our full reliance and trust on you. Help us, Lord, to see that you have promised to be our light and that the trappings of this world are not necessary for the goodness that you promise us. Lord, help us not to be carried up in the midst of what this world has to offer. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to become too familiar with the divine. That we fail to see. That we fail to see what you've given us and what you've granted us through your son. And so, Lord, today we thank you for the story of the Magi. I pray, Lord God, that in reading it, Lord, we would be given a renewed sense of awe for who you are and for your glory. And that we would pursue that awe day after day. That we wouldn't be held back by seeing it so many times that we become too familiar, too fatigued. And become distressed because of the things of this world again. Lord, give, a, give us eyes to see. Help us to become light. That you may be glorified. That people would come into your kingdom. Into the this, this, this society you've laid ahead for us. That they would fall down and worship you. 
Lord, help us to be people who proclaim the message of your son, especially in the in-between times. Lord, we thank you today for your goodness and your mercy. In your son's name, amen.